Would you open your Bibles, please, to Proverbs chapter 4. We are in a, a time this January about wisdom. That's what we're taking some time to consider in the Word. And we're doing most of that from the book of Proverbs. And this morning, I would like to bring us to a concept that surfaces a lot in the Scriptures and in the wisdom writings of Scripture. Uh, and that is the concept of the path, what it means to be on the path of God. So I want to offer you this illustration. I think this will maybe help get us going. When I served in Afghanistan in 2002, I served at an air base called Bagram Air Base. It's uh, northeast of Kabul, the capital. And during the Soviet-Afghan War, it was a highly contested place. So at Kabul, and excuse me, at Bagram, all around the flight line, it's saturated with landmines. Just, just completely saturated with landmines. When I was there, uh, one soldier digging a ditch was killed by a landmine. It's just, just everywhere you go. If you were walking along the sidewalk and uh, trash blew out of your hand and off five feet off the sidewalk, you would not, nobody would step off that sidewalk. No one ever left the pavement. That's how serious it was. The nearby villages around the base, <clears throat> a lot of times the locals had their, their way of getting to the fence line to look or to talk or to trade or whatever it was. But what was interesting was the distance between their village, let's just say the 200 yards between their village and the fence, there was this field, which I think in another world and another time would have had crops, but not this field. And in this field, there were trails that zigzagged all through the field to get to the fence. It wasn't a straight line. It was a very well-trodden path that they would always walk the same path in order to get to the fence line. Just think about that. Think about growing up and your memory, as soon as you could walk, was any time I leave my village, I never ever get off the trail. It was December of 2002. Uh, the weather was really bad one night, and a lot of the farther bases where the faster airplanes lived uh, were closed down because of a blizzard. And so on this particular night, um, a Danish F-16 diverted into Bagram Air Base and it was it had a long flight. It had been about a six-hour sortie, and it was bad weather, and there was fog and mist. And he had never been to Bagram, and and he's tired, I'm sure. And as a result of all of that, when he landed, he landed fast, and he landed halfway down the runway. So he couldn't stop. And as his airplane, uh, well, in fact, I'll show it to you here. Um, actually. That's not it. I don't, I don't know how that got in there. Uh, this is his airplane right here. As he approached the end of the runway, he couldn't stop. And so he ejects out of the airplane, and his jet goes off the end of the runway into the field. The jet's in the field, and he lands in the field in the middle of the night 
at Bagram. So I'll say a week later when they finally hoisted this out with a helicopter, they had to remove 11 landmines to get that airplane out. And this guy lands in the middle of that field. Well, let's look here. And we're eventually going to come back to the subject of path. Uh, but there is something on the way there that I, want, I just feel it's worth spending time on. So I would say the principle of path reigns this morning in the text, but it doesn't mean there's not other things to see. And I, I, want, us to, I want us to observe what's, what's here, uh, all of it. So let me read the first nine verses of Proverbs 4, and, uh, and we'll talk. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts, do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her for she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in paths of uprightness. Now, in light of the fact that last Sunday we talked about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom, I just want us at least to notice here how much the fear of the Lord, sort of a respectful awe for what's being said is implied here. This, the way the Father is, Son, get wisdom at all costs. In ESV it says the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Other translations might say something like this, wisdom is supreme get wisdom, or the most important thing is wisdom, go get it. There's, in, in this counsel, this get wisdom. If you have any fear of the Lord, any fear of the Lord at all, this should cause us to, to at least revisit our life and say, how am I living? What am I pursuing? Some of you might say, well, I thought I was supposed to pursue Christ first. Well, Colossians, Paul says, but in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But to pursue Christ is to pursue wisdom. Wisdom describes how God's made the universe. Christ is the one who did it. Pursue the maker and understand how the world's made. It's, this whole chapter assumes there's a fear of the Lord. But I want us to look sort of behind or beneath the main teaching. I think we could all say the main teaching here is wisdom and understanding are first to those who fear God. And it's found in God. But here's, 
what I want us to spend a little more time on this morning is hiding just under. Did you hear, by the way, the paternal nature of the instruction? You know, my son. And all through Proverbs, it's sort of cast that way as a voice from a father to a son or a voice from a parent to a child. But even here, it's a little bit more paternal than normal. Look at verse 1. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. It's a little more than you normally get. And then you get to verse 3, and verse 3 is special. This doesn't often show up. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me. What the writer is saying is, when I was a kid, when I was a little kid, when I was an only child, my dad said to me. And then, even in the translations, we don't know where to put all the quotes in verse 4. So, we don't know where to end it. Right? My dad said to me, I don't know, when do you stop here? My dad said to me, above all things, pursue wisdom. Wisdom is supreme. Watch how I live. Follow what I've shown you. I think it's very important for us to kind of use our mind's eye to observe this moment. This moment is a father telling a son what their father told them when they were their father's son. That's the picture here. And that is the picture... That, I think, is the biblical picture of how wisdom is given. It's from a parent to a child. That's how it is done. We might ask, where is the center of instruction for wisdom? Where does that happen? And I think the Lord would say, it happens in the kitchen more than it happens in college. It takes place in the house. That's where it's supposed to happen. I think in in our minds we assume King Solomon, while he's so wise, and people would come to the court of the king to get wisdom, which they did, and they would come from all around the world to get wisdom from the king, which they did. But don't mistake the uniqueness of Solomon for the regular manner in which wisdom is transmitted throughout generations. It's done in the house. It's done in the living room between parents and children. That is the chief way, if you read the Bible, the whole Bible assumes that the parent is raising the child in wisdom. Train up your child in the way he should go, and when he grows old, he will not depart from it. The world suggests to parents and to children that really what you're waiting for is to get out from underneath mom and dad to go figure out how to think. And that the truth is waiting for you out there. Now, I do think there's this importance of getting out from underneath, of moving, crossing that mysterious line from child to adult. That, that's, that's real, and it's felt real in my own life. But it does not mean leaving the teaching of your parents. And it certainly does not imply that the teaching outside of your parents is better. Just because we've codified it in the university doesn't mean it's qualified. I think we also find in this world we live in the information age, which is very different. It might even be called an opposite from the age of wisdom. Wisdom is not ultimately concerned about information. 
Wisdom is concerned with how things work. And yet, we, we, want, we want our kids to make the grade, to get the knowledge. We are training them, if we're not careful, we are training them to chase after the wrong thing. I also want us to note where wisdom begins. It begins in childhood, not adulthood. I've heard this many times in one way or another. The notion that as a parent, um, uh, someone will say very proud as though they've parented really well. I'm not trying to teach my child how to think. I'm trying to raise them so that they can make their own decisions. <laughs> I, I, I guess there's a way that that is respectable. There is a way that that is wildly dangerous. I am trying to teach my child the way he should think. I am. I'm trying to teach them to think for themselves, absolutely, but to come up with the right answer. I want them to know exactly how to think because they're going to go into a world that's not going to, it's not going to care for them because they're young. It's going to prey on them in their youth. They're going to enter the exact same world you are entering. What is all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that you've accrued? Is that something that you simply want them to learn through experience? Think of the way you got some of it. Do you really want them to get it that way? I find, and by the way, I find that parents, they are bolder in instructing their kids in the things that they did well, and they opt towards passivity in instructing their kids in the things they did poorly. Why? Don't you have, that makes me wonder by one, maybe you've not experienced the full redemption of God in the areas that you failed. Aren't those the very areas, by the way, that you should suspect you need to be most active in teaching. Should we not teach from our weakness? We're not teaching our truth. We're teaching God's truth. We're not teaching the fear of the dad. We're teaching the fear of the Lord. And it begins at childhood. I also want us to note how it's taught. This is likely going to be the least enjoyable of these three points. He says, verse 10, this is why I read through 10 and 11. I'm just going to read them again. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. Right? You're teaching to save their life. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. We, okay, we are to teach how a person should live. The way we discipline is to instruct them. Now, I will compare that in my own life to the ideal of, of shepherding someone to think about the world right versus the way I often parent, which is say what needs to be said to get them in the car or to stop one of them from choking another one. Or to, I parent, if I'm completely honest, I parent with volume to get what I want done. And maybe there's wisdom in all of that. Sure, there's wisdom in knowing I'm the dad and you're, you're the, the child, I, I guess. But w- what I mean is I can believe, I could even know the way of life and I could be actively parenting and creating an environment of obedience and still not actually teaching someone how to live. That is different. 
That has them in mind, not me in mind. In thinking about this this week, I am uh, astounded and amazed, if I take it all in, at how many ways we parents have marginalized our parenting. Now, this is, I'm, I'm, I probably have already said things that are broad brushed, so don't feel overly bad. Feel bad a little bit, okay? We're not that different. Uh, by the way, there's a parenting conference coming up, all right? So if you're like, what do I do? There's a shout out. Uh, but just think of the ways we have marginalized our parenting. We've outsourced our parenting. Overwhelmingly, other people see your children more than you do. As far as the waking hours of the day, we've in, we entrust our children into the hands and the instruction of other people. We, I mean, we have... We, we outsource them. We've minimized our parenting. There's the classic example of the sitcom dad, right? And what does dad know? It used to be fathers knows best. Now, what does, what does dad know? You know, also we've professionalized the notions of child rearing so that it looks weird for parents to do it. So we have to send our child to this coach to do that and to this instructor to do that and to this teacher to do that and to this tutor to do that and to this professional to do that. So pretty soon it appears as though all we ever do is transport our child from one professional to another, which has the result of minimizing your impact. Are you a driver or a parent? Think of the old world. So think of all of human history prior to 1700. So if you think mankind's been around for 6,000 years, think of all of it except for a couple hundred years. The child was growing up in the shadow of the parent constantly. That is where this text is coming from. It's coming from that world. If we're going to understand the scriptures right, we need to read them from the context from which they're coming out. And this is coming from a setting where as soon as the kid can help in the field, he's with the dad in the field. And as soon as the child can help snap peas, she's snapping peas with her mom. That is the setting. There's constant contact with the family and the extended family of the village. Constant. We've misprioritized as parents. Here, it's, I've taught you the way of wisdom. I've taught you how to be. If you're going to get anything, get wisdom. I sort of feel like it's very common to say, if you're going to get anything, get a good grade in math. Get to a good college. Get on a good team. I want to know, can you hear in your own mind and in your own upbringing how we may have misprioritized, aimed too low at what we're trying to do? We've abdicated. Recently, Delaware passed this law about spanking, right, which makes us scared to spank. Does that mean we don't spank? You know, I sort of think Peter in the light of severe persecution in Jerusalem, said, well, I have to choose between my king and your king. Is that, is that, do we now abdicate those things? Do we abdicate biblical discipline because the world said don't do it? Because of the culture of privacy, you know, can I read her texts? 
The answer is overwhelmingly yes. Read them. Demolish the myth of privacy in your home. You are the parent. Do you want, do you want to be surprised at what has happened? Or do you want to invade as it's happening? Don't ground them. Don't meddle. Godly parenting meddles. It meddles because it's training a child in the way they should go. I have this thought, and, and we'll move on now to path, but just as, as we're leaving, we live possibly in the most deconstructed social era where everything is being torn down, torn down, which means your parenting style needs to be highly constructive. What I'm saying is, is if you are passive, it is, it is being torn down. Parenting now needs to be highly constructive, which means you're deriving the foundation and the first floor, and the second floor, and the third floor. You can't talk about the third floor. It's coming down. You have to come into the bottom and say, this is what worship is. This is what obedience is. This is what wisdom is. We have to build this from the ground floor up in this culture. Okay, we can go to path now. In fact, I'm going to start in verse 10, because the father heads to the subject of path of the son. Let me read 10 through 19. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. And as I read, I want you to hear path. Listen for path. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her for she is your life. Do you hear the fear of the Lord in this? Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they've made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So the phrase, the idea of path is all in this. And it's, by the way, it's all through Proverbs. And it, it's all through the Psalms. And it shows up throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. It's a biblical concept here. You have this notion of the straight path, which is the path of the one who fears the Lord, where their walk will not be hampered, nor will they stumble, is what the text says. And then you have this notion of the wicked path, which the writer tells us to avoid at all costs. I mean, did you, you listen to the rhythm? Look at verse 13 about the good path versus verse 15 about the evil path. Verse 13, keep hold of the instruction. Do not let go. Guard her. She's your life. Now listen to 15 about the evil path. Avoid it, don't go on it, turn away from it, pass on. How much more? If you have the fear of the Lord, you've heard it. If you can't hear it, this is a great test. What else can be said? How? The Lord is not saying it too quietly here. He's saying, watch 
out what way you're living. Just so that we have a sense that the concept of path is not like metaphorically theological. I think it's deeply theological. In other words, this idea should be well thought out because it shows up all through the Bible. For example, uh, when the Jews come out of Egypt and they're going to the promised land, the Lord leads them through the wilderness as fire by night and as a pillar of cloud by day. You, you see that? This idea of path and following the Lord. Then you get to the Psalms and the Proverbs. Just between the word path and the way, in the book of Proverbs, it's almost about a hundred times it shows up. And all through the Psalms, familiar places like, He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Proverbs 3, just before this chapter, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. This is from the Proverbs, or the Prophets, just to show you how it shows up there also. This is Jeremiah writing. He says this, the Lord sa- Thus says the Lord, the, there you go. Thus says the Lord. Just, this is beautiful. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. It's here, it's in the text. We get to the New Testament, right? The Gospel of John, which Joel quoted several times, right? These are signs in the book. John talks about signs that point to Christ. This idea of getting the way to Jesus. Jesus describes himself as the way. The Christian movement, when it first began, was known as the way. I'm saying path is not a, a convenient metaphor in Proverbs 4. Path is, is a metaphor that crosses the word. So what can we say about the path? Well, here's the first thing we need to say about the path. I four, four thoughts about path. First of all, paths take us somewhere. Let's, if we're going to think about what, why use this word path and what is, it, what, is, what is it trying to happen here? First of all, paths take us somewhere. Probably could have done a larger font. There's a destination with the path. So here's a, here's, a, here's a passage, Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Now, where does, that, where does that go? That path leads to destruction. Paths take us somewhere. What I'm suggesting is, is often in our behavior, especially when we're on a dangerous path towards destruction, often in our behavior, we examine ourselves in our present moment and we think we have this under control. We have this managed, we have this mitigated. But the reality is, it's not where you are, it's where you're going that matters. It's where you're going. And if you could step back in your behavior and think, where is all this taking me? There might be hope. That's why I, one of the reasons why I think the word uses path is because it's saying, it's not so much where you are today, it's where you're going in life that God's trying to rescue you from. 
or call you to. Likewise, there's a lot of things in the Christian life, in the life of God, that are hard. And in the moment, in the moment, it's not easy. But if you have in mind, I'm on a path to somewhere, well, there's hope. If the destination's worth it, you'll walk it. That's the idea. Here's the second notion. Paths can be straight or they can be crooked. There's two kinds of ways in the Scriptures. There is, we've said this, right? He's on the straight and narrow. There's the straight and narrow path, and then there is the path of the wicked or the crooked path. But here's the strange thing about the crooked path and the straight and narrow is the straight and narrow sounds easy, even though in the Word there's sort of this understanding that if you're on the straight and narrow, it will be hard, but no harm will come. And the crooked path, it sounds in our minds like it would be treacherous, but in the Scriptures, the crooked path appears easy, like a shortcut, but brings you great harm towards death. So let me just return to Matthew 7 here. Just listen to it. Enter by the narrow gate. Well, who would want to do that? It says, for the gate is wide and the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. In this case, the straight and narrow is hard. And few choose to travel on it. And the crooked path looks easy. And it's full of people. There's an old ACDC song. Some of you know it. I'm on the highway to hell is the chorus. And I don't mean this about ACDC. I don't know where they are, but that's about right. That's a fairly good theology. The path to hell is smooth like a highway. The enemy will always make it easy for you to come to him. That is his, he is very much oriented around the customer. It is a highway. Here's a third notion. Paths have other people on them. Paths have others on them. So I don't know if you noticed this, but in the description of the wicked path, there's, it's almost talked about more like who's on the path. So look at verse 16. Well, 15, avoid it, don't go on it, turn away from it, pass on, for they cannot sleep unless they've done wrong. They are robbed of sleep until they've made someone stumble, for they eat bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. There's this, this crowd, right? Because it's a highway, there's a gaggle. The, the, the highway to hell is Bourbon Street. It's fun. It's got people on it. I even find as I read the text, I find... When I read about the straight and narrow, throughout the Proverbs or the Psalms, when I come to those things, I, what I feel is the goodness of it and sometimes the solitary experience of it. Like it's me and God. Whereas, when I read about the path, the crooked path, it sounds very noisy. And I think that's about right. That should be right for whenever you choose to live among the few and not the many, it's going to feel that way. Did you notice, by the way, that the, the, the crowd you're with here, they're not satisfied until someone's made a mistake. If, if you, anyone here who's ever made a hobby of the wrong crowd knows this, 
The party isn't good until someone has done something stupid. And people wait around for it. I'm just waiting to see what she's going to do. There's this dissatisfaction. There's this continuing growing, right? It's like an addiction. It's a growing dissatisfaction. It's a boredom with what was edgy yesterday, and it's a need for what's edgy tomorrow. This appetite of, well, what other sort of thing, dark thing, can be done? I guess what I mean to say is the path you choose has a lot to do with who you travel with. We'll say it this way. We'll say, yeah, that person's walking with the wrong crowd. They're with the wrong crowd. Here's the fourth thing. Notice how the ideas of path and way give way to concepts like like, light and dark. Let me just read verses 18 and 19. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. There is in this, right, paths affect what we're able to see. So I want you to feel there's a compounding. This is not just redundant. It's creating a compounding problem or a compounding feeling about the nature of wisdom and the nature of foolishness, which is that when you are on the path of light, when you're on the right path, excuse me, when you're on the right path, it may be hard, but the longer you're on it, like the sun rising, you're able to see clearly what you need to do. Whereas, when you're on the wrong path, oh wait, you already have, you're not just on the wrong path, you're on the wrong path with the wrong people wandering in the dark. That's like hopeless. You're traveling to the wrong destination with people who do not want the best for you, and you're doing it in the dark. That that is what the Lord is warning us from. Don't you know where you're going? Because there's going to be people with you who don't care about you. And you can't even see what's going to happen. We say in the vernacular, someone's stumbling in the dark. I say at home, nothing good happens after midnight. It's about the truest earthly proverb ever. Whereas the wise say this, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Isn't that just so noble of a statement? Or it's said this way, if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. When we are walking in the right way, all the good happens. So I want to I close with this. I want to ask you, well, I want to ask you where are you headed? And on one level, my heart has, a, I have a heart of invitation for that. Uh, though I imagine on a snowy day, probably the people who climb into church think they're fine with the Lord and, 
I would hope that would be the case, that you're walking with the Lord. But I still would say, at a grand, at a grand level, where are you headed? Because at least you would say, at least, if, if you're not walking with the Lord, at least you say, on the day of judgment, if there is a judgment, when God comes, if there is a God, I cannot say he did not warn me. It's here. Don't do it. Watch out. Pass on. Be careful. It's dark. But in a smaller way, what I want to encounter with those who call Christ Savior right now is your micropath. What's, your, what's going on in your life right now? I want you to pause and think about what's going on in your life right now and I want, on that thing, right? That thing that might be questionable or I might even want to encourage you. If you're on a path that's hard, but it's the straight and narrow, remind yourself of the destination. But if you're not on the path that's hard, if you sort of feel like you're in a path that you would rather someone not turn the light on to have it exposed, I want to say, where is it taking you to then? If you can't take that path and expose it to broad daylight, I want to warn you, the goal is your destruction. So this guy, he ejects, lands in a minefield. I remember this keenly. I met him that night. He gets up, doesn't know. He's never been to Bagram, doesn't know about minefields. Who, when would you ever land in a field anywhere and think, I better not move? Because there might be a bunch of mines around me. He doesn't know that. He gets up. And he starts to walk, and he walks straight out of the minefield. I mean, people all around talked about it for days. Some said he was a fool. I guess we could say he's a fool. He could have known. He could have read the, the regs going into Bagram. I suppose he could have known. It was written there for him. Somebody probably wrote down for him, watch out, whatever you do. He could have landed right. I mean, he was fine. He was in the dark in the first place making mistakes all by himself. He gets up, though, and just walks straight out. I'll never forget that. We're like, there were, I told you, there were 11 landmines around his airplane. I remember staring at him. Now, we could say he's a fool or he was lucky. We could also say God has mercy. In fact, this is how I want us to end. You know, the more and more I think about it in my life, I think, <laughs> who here did not walk out of a minefield? Think about it. Think about all the times in your life. And some of you haven't been rotten enough to come with a long list, but I have a long enough list to know there are times in my life where I could have had a foot blown off with, because a tomfoolery foot blown off. I'm just saying where I could have stepped on a landmine and it changed my life. For some reason, for some crazy reason of the mercy of Jesus, I walked out like a fool. I didn't know where I was going and I was not on his path and I am now. And I look back and think, what was I doing? That's how all of us should be when we walk out of this building, not sort of in the forgetful arrogance as though you were birthed on the path of righteousness but with the humble, grace-filled heart of one who just stumbled out of a minefield into the grace of Christ.
His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Let's pray. Lord, it's our prayer that as some, as few have found your path, stumbled, stumbled onto the path of Christ, Lord, I pray first for them that they would stay there and they would walk and flourish in life so that others might see if I walk there, my life will flourish. That others might be curious about where they're going. Where is this person going that seems to give so much light and life? What is the way, Lord? May, may our lives make people wonder as to the way so that we can tell them all about him. And Lord, I pray for that holy humility that realizes all of the ways, all of the natural ways we deserved great harm. But in your radical mercy, we stumbled into your path. And Lord, I do pray for those here who they know if they exposed their path to the light, they would see it leads to destruction. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would save them from their folly. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.